If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 24, as we resume our study there in that book. Thank you to Joshua and to Jake for covering things for the past three weeks. I'm very appreciative of that. Um, and so now it's time to go back to Acts. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 24, and we'll go all the way to chapter 25, verse 12. In 1994, in Scotland, a woman named Fiona Campbell completed a walk around the world. Uh, she had started it some 11 years earlier, obviously taking breaks in between. Um, but there in Scotland in 1994, she completed this walk around the world. Except that she didn't really complete a walk around the world. It was years later, after her name had already been printed in the Guinness Book of World Records, that she admitted to riding in her support truck for about a thousand miles during her walk across the United States. It was a lie that she said had been eating at her for years, and it led to relational conflict in her life. It led to her using illegal drugs. Uh, in an article from Outside Magazine, she is quoted as saying this, I couldn't continue with the lie. I had a choice between another hit of smack or something else. I was doomed. I was going to die. That was the alternative. I thought I could get away with it. I couldn't get away with it. I couldn't carry on living it. And so nearly killed literally by her guilt, she confessed to having cheated. And eventually she went back and walked that section of the U.S. that she had ridden, but she still asked that the Guinness Book of World Records remove her name from the book because of this breach of trust that she had caused. But having your name removed from the Guinness Book of World Records is a small price to pay for having a clear conscience. And so thinking about this idea of clear, having a clear conscience, can I ask you a really tough question? How clear is your conscience? Maybe first we should ask what a clear conscience is. Uh, I don't have a textbook definition for a clear conscience. This is just sort of something we can probably agree on what we mean when we say, what is a clear conscience? Uh, a clear conscience is one that has no barrier of fellowship between us and another person or between us and God. Uh, there's nothing that keeps us from being in relationship. Uh, there's no wrongdoing or sin against another person that we're hiding or against God that we're trying to, to not think or, or to not speak out loud. Uh, you might think about someone on trial, as we're going to see Paul is later on in this passage, and maybe the person on this trial is completely innocent of that crime. They have no connection to it. Maybe they were out of the country when it happened, and so their conscience is completely clear. I didn't do what I'm being accused of. A clear conscience, though, doesn't necessarily mean that a person has never done anything wrong, right? Rather, it means that wrongdoings and sins are quickly confessed. Their life is an open book before God and before others. Nothing is, is hidden. They have a clear conscience. Fiona Campbell lacked a clear conscience for years, but coming clean about her lies brought some of the peace that she had been missing, and I'm sure that it shaped and has continued to shape the way that she's lived her life since. In Philippians 2.15, Paul calls followers of Jesus to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among other things, that's a call to live a life that has a clear conscience. It's not a call to perfection. It's not a call to false piety, but it's a call to purity 
of conscience. And through his own example here in Acts 24 and 25, Paul makes that same call to us through his life. Uh, God's word instructs us, I think, this afternoon in this way. It says, strive to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That's what I want us to, to push towards this afternoon as we look at God's word. Strive to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Strive is, in the passage it says, take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. We're going to see and hear Paul's clear conscience through his own actions and his words, but we're also going to see Paul's clear conscience shining forth in contrast to the other characters in this passage, namely the Jewish leaders, Felix and Festus. And as we look at this and we marvel in these passages about God's control over all things, we can also sense that Paul has this peace in the midst of this storm that's going around him, going on around him, not only because he knows God is in control, but also because he has a clear conscience about everything that is being thrown at him. And I think we all long for that kind of a peace. And if we want peace, this specific kind of peace in our lives, then we need to heed this call to strive to have a clear conscience before both God and man. Before we read uh, Acts 24, 1 to 25, 12, we should remember where we're at in this account, uh, the book of Acts, the account of the early church that Luke has recorded for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this book is calling us to join in on the never-stopping, ever-increasing, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. And we're in what I would say is the final section of the book, which probably began at, in Acts chapter 21, verse 17, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem. This marked the end of his third missionary journey, and it has now, as he had been making his way towards Jerusalem, the, that journey was over, and he's heading to Jerusalem. And as he's going to Jerusalem, he's told something over and over again. He's told that imprisonment and afflictions await him in Jerusalem. And these predictions have proven true, we've seen already. Um, We've seen him beaten by the Jews. He was arrested by the Romans in the temple, and he's already had to defend himself before the Jewish leaders twice, both times resulting in riots. Um, But Paul was also told not only that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him, But between these trials, the Lord himself came to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11, and said this, Take courage, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And it's that promise from God himself that drives the rest of this book as we're pushing to get Paul to Rome as the Lord has promised It's this call to courage and to trust that God is going to accomplish his purposes in Paul's life and in the life of the church. And so as chapter 23 closed, this man Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune, remember he's a fairly honorable guy that God was using. He had just sent Paul by night to Caesarea so that Paul could avoid this plot to kill him, you remember. They were going to kill Paul on the way, avoiding that plot and also with the hopes of him receiving a fair trial Um, outside of Jerusalem. And so chapter 24 takes us to Caesarea. Uh, Not in Jerusalem anymore, we're in Caesarea. And Paul is preparing for, uh, to to stand trial, not before Jewish authorities, but before the Roman government now. And he's going to stand before the governor of that area, Felix. And so I want to read chapter 24 through the middle of chapter 25. It's a bigger section, so one way to 
some cues to maybe look for would be um, what we might call timestamps, uh, or what does it say about when this all was happening? So you'll notice in verse one, it begins, and after five days. There's a lot of those within this passage, so you can kind of get a feel for how long this all took. So maybe take note of those as you hear the, the story here um, in Acts 24. So Acts 24, beginning in verse, in verse one, God's word says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among, the Jew, among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or storing up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing that everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having ho a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and, make, to make an, and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, 
that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. This passage, as I see it, breaks down into just three sections, fairly simply. There's the trial before Felix in chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. There's Felix's response in chapter 24, verses 22 through 27. And then there's the trial before Festus in chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. That trial which culminates in this God-ordained decree and partial fulfillment of that promise from chapter 23 where where uh, Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. One of the great lines there. I love that. You probably noticed this two-year gap um, between the trials in chapter 24, verse 27. So the first trial took place about five days after Paul had been snuck out of Jerusalem and just 12 days after he had been arrested in the temple. The second trial happened some two years later but it was only two weeks after Festus had succeeded Felix. So Paul and his supposed crimes were still fresh in the minds of the Jewish leaders two years after the incident in the temple. And they were just as ready to see him executed and silenced after all that time. Which may be, it may give us a sense of how upset these leaders were at what Paul had done. This is the first item of business that they bring to the new governor. We need to deal with Paul. We're told that time heals all wounds. It had been two years, and the Jews were still, they were still mad enough to have Paul executed, mad enough even to do it, uh, to take matters into their own hands. And, and so these chapters, if you look at these two courtroom scenes, they end up being a, a kind of courtroom drama. Uh, you might initially read these and, and feel like it's a bit boring, but maybe you can envision uh, them in the vein of a, of a TV drama or a, a TV movie that ends in this big courtroom scene. I mean, we all watch those even now, um, and I guess this is in some sense an ancient courtroom drama, kind of a Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth situation. You know, that's what's going on here. Um, in this first trial before Rome, we're told that the Jewish leaders came to Caesarea. And this group included Ananias, who's the high priest that had been at Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin, and a new guy, a slick lawyer named Tertullus. 
And Tertullus brings uh, accusation in a typical way of the time, namely with this statement meant to put Felix in his good graces. Uh, some of what Tertullus says is true, but he's also embellishing. He's also, you know, trying to um, play on, on um, Felix's ego in order to gain a good hearing uh, before him. Uh, it makes sense that he would embellish these things because he embellishes the charges against Paul too. Uh, there's three charges that he levels against Paul. The first is that Paul stirs up riots wherever he goes. He's a troublemaker. He's a revolutionary. He's an insurrectionist. He's a threat to the Roman government. Uh, the second charge is that he's the ringleader of a religious sect called the Nazarene sect, which would not have been an approved religion in the Roman Empire like Judaism, won, Judaism was. And then there's the third um, accusation is that he tried to profane and desecrate the temple by bringing a Greek man into the inner court, which would have been a capital offense. So um, he stirs up riots, he's a ringleader of a religious sect, and he tried to desecrate the temple, which would have caused major issues. The Jews affirm all three of these charges, and they all trust that Felix is going to do the right thing, which is condemn Paul. In verse 10, you have this scene where the governor simply nods at Paul. Uh, doesn't say a word to Paul, just sort of gives him a nod, and that's Paul's cue to make his defense. Uh, he begins um, with a word of affirmation to Felix, just like Tertullus, but not as ingratiating. Uh, he simply says he's glad he's before Felix because he thinks Felix uh, understands the way and is going to give him a fair trial. Um, he then answers all three charges. Uh, regarding the charge of stirring up riots, Paul says he's only been in Jerusalem for a short period of time and that they have no evidence of him stirring up a crowd in the city, in the temple, anywhere. In fact, Paul, as we know from reading the book of Acts, Paul did his best to lay low. Paul was really trying actually not to cause problems, but to show himself to be a law-abiding and law-respecting guy. Uh, the second charge, he clarifies... Uh, on the second charge, he clarifies that he's not the leader of a sect called the Nazarenes. Rather, he, he calls his faith the way, uh, which is a common way that the book of Acts especially refers to the, the followers of Jesus. And furthermore, he says that the way is not a, it's not a sect. It's not a, an offshoot. It's not a cult of some kind. But rather, it's the fulfillment of everything that his accusers have been looking for, that Jesus and salvation through faith in him is actually, that's what Abraham was looking for. That's what the law and the prophets had been proclaiming all along. He even brings up the resurrection again, which is what had got the, the last trial thrown into a, a riot. But Paul never misses a chance to announce the hope of the resurrection. He's a resurrection man through and through. And without even noticing it, as we read through this, we realize that Paul has moved from defending himself to now he's defending and proclaiming the gospel in the midst of his trial. He announces that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and that it's through his death and resurrection that we can have hope to stand forgiven at the coming resurrection of the just and the unjust. It's this, this reality of, of the coming judgment that motivates Paul and, and causes him to strive after this clear conscience that I want us to think about this afternoon. Look, look at verses 15 and 16 again of chapter 24. Paul's speaking and he says, having a hope in God, which these men, his accusers, themselves accept, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then because of that, he says, so therefore I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Having a, a clear conscience before Ananias and Felix and Festus was one thing, but he also knew that one day he was going to stand before the judge of all the earth at the final resurrection, and he wanted to have a clear conscience before God. In John 5, Jesus said to the crowd, and he says to our souls this afternoon, very truly I, say, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged that has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. That's what Daniel prophesied in Daniel 12 too. He wrote, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. And Paul says that it's Jesus who makes it possible for us to stand before the judge in that final courtroom and have a clear conscience. Not because of our own goodness, but it's faith in Jesus' life and death and resurrection that lets us stand before God on the last day with a clear conscience. That's why the author of Hebrews exhorts us and says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and our hearts, listen to this, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So we who are followers of Jesus can have a clear conscience before God because of the righteousness of Jesus that's given to us and because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And so as Paul writes in Romans, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And so our clear conscience on the last day before that judgment is the result of the work of Christ on our behalf. And because we have that clear conscience and the hope of a clear conscience on judgment day, we, like Paul, now strive to have a clear conscience presently before both God and man, to live blameless lives in this world. And that's how Paul says he has lived his entire time in Jerusalem and how he strove to always live. He knew he had done nothing wrong. And and so he answers all the charges, and he answers this third charge of profaning the temple by saying not only that he's innocent, but he exposes the cowardice of all his accusers. He says he came to Jerusalem not to cause riots. He came to Jerusalem to bring alms, to bring a gift, to bless the, the people in Jerusalem who were hurt by a famine in the area, not to desecrate the temple. And these Jews from from Asia who had made the charge, I love what he says. He says, where are these guys at? 
They're the ones that brought the charge. If they've got an issue, why aren't they here in the courtroom? That's a man with a clear conscience that can speak that boldly before a, a Roman governor. He closes his defense by sort of bringing up the resurrection again in the midst of these Sadducees who denied it. He allows its, its weight to fall on them once again, and they, they can't cause a problem this time. They just kind of have to sit silently in the back. Can you imagine how, how Paul's clear conscience affronted those that were accusing him? These people who were making false claims against him, they knew that they were lying about what Paul had done. Remember, it's Ananias. Ananias is the high priest who told the man next to Paul to strike him on the mouth when Paul said that he, that he had lived his entire life with a good conscience. Ananias did not have a clear conscience. And he, he feared the resurrection. He feared the judgment to come, which may be why he just decided to deny its reality. What a contrast Ananias' polluted conscience makes to Paul's pure and clear conscience. Felix is no different than Ananias. He was a, a keen politician. He knew after he heard the case that, that Paul had done nothing wrong. But he also knew that if he said Paul was innocent, that things would not go well for him uh, with his relationship with the Jews. So what does he do? I'll think about it. We'll talk about this later. I need to wait for Lysias to come down and so we can clarify some stuff. He just postpones it. And then he postpones it. And then he postpones it. Two years he decides not to make a decision. Paul's given relative freedom, but he's still in house arrest for two years. And yet during those two years, Felix is constantly calling Paul to come and talk to him. The first meeting uh, is fairly soon after, just after some days, um, he shows up. It seems to have been initiated by Felix's wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Uh, listen to what F.F. F. Bruce says history teaches us about Drusilla, because I think it gives us an idea of why Felix is alarmed uh, when Paul starts to talk to him about faith in Jesus and about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. This is the description of, of what this relationship was like. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I and at this time was not yet 20 years old. So Drusilla is a, a young woman. Uh, as a small girl, she had been betrothed to the crown prince of Comagene, I think is how you say it, in Eastern Asia Minor. But the marriage did not take place because the prospective bridegroom refused to become a proselyte to Judaism. Then her brother, Agrippa II, gave her in marriage to the king of Amisa, a petty state in Syria. But when she was still only 16, Drusilla is 16, Felix, with the help, it is said, of a Cypriot magician called Atomus, persuaded her to leave her husband and come to be his wife, promising her, with a play on his own name, every felicity if she did so. Accordingly, she joined Felix as his third wife and bore him a son named Agrippa, who met his death in the eruption of Vesuvius in A.D. 79, which is also how Drusilla died. What a nasty thing was going on amongst all these, these folks. Uh, Drusilla, I, I feel some compassion for her. She's just this political pawn that's being passed around, and Felix stealing this, this woman from another man when she's just 16 years old. 
so as you think about all this political conniving and the moral depravity that surrounded this couple, you can understand why Paul's clear conscience and why his words about coming judgment would alarm Felix in particular. And so we can sense that Paul has this courage that flows from his clear conscience, and he sounds like John the Baptist before Herod, doesn't he? He just confronts this man with the gospel, and he confronts him with the reality of the great coming judgment day. But Felix seems to have no conscience anymore. As Paul writes, maybe his conscience was seared. It was lifeless, because Felix just sort of dismisses him. He calls him back from time to time, maybe to hear him, but what's the main motivation? He wants a bribe. Maybe I can get some money out of Paul. I'm not sure why he thought Paul had a lot of money, but for whatever reason, he thinks he's going to get some money. And then, just before he's succeeded by Festus, he leaves Paul in prison. Why? As a favor to the Jews, because he wants the Jews to be on his side. He wanted a bribe, and he wanted to make the Jews happy. The love of money and the love of popularity are enemies of a clear conscience. The love of money and the love of popularity and being liked are enemies of a clear conscience. If you love money, you will sell your integrity to get more. You'll lie. You'll cheat on your taxes. You'll find any way you can to get more of it, even if it causes you to have an unclear conscience. And if you love the praises of men and women, more than the praises of God, then you will sacrifice your clear conscience so that others will think well of you. We can look at Felix and see how nasty he was, but man, his sins reside in our own hearts, don't they? That love of money and the desire to be liked, and it can cause us to do some pretty nasty things to get money, to get people to like us. Festus seems to have struggled with this desire for popularity as well. That same phrase shows up again, desiring to do the Jews a favor. Um, after arriving in Caesarea, when he had succeeded Felix, he quickly makes a trip to Jerusalem, and the Jews find him right away, and they tell him, we want Paul here to stand trial. And again, they're going to ambush him on the way. It doesn't seem like they took another vow of not eating. Remember that? They took this vow. We won't eat until Paul's dead, and then he got snuck out of the city. So now they just said, we're going to kill him, but you know, we'll keep eating in the midst of that time. So no vow, but they're going to they're gonna kill Paul. But Festus, in God's sovereignty, says, I'm happy to hear your case, but you've got to come to Caesarea. I'm not bringing him up here. The, the trial here recorded is much, it's much uh, briefer. It's, it's not as descriptive, probably because it's just the same old, same old. False accusations from the Jews uh, and a bold statement of innocence before uh, before the council. Paul says, I'm innocent. I haven't, I haven't broken the Jewish law. I haven't desecrated the temple. I've done nothing before Caesar. And Festus sees no solution to the trial. So again, he tries to get some political capital out of it. And maybe I'll send Paul to Jerusalem. But Paul says, I'm not going to Jerusalem because I haven't done anything against Jerusalem. I'm in the right place. I'm in Caesar's court. And so what does he do? He appeals to the highest court of the land. He wants to stand before Caesar himself. And so the plans of the, enemy, um, of the enemies of Paul are once again foiled, and Paul is given his request, and he's heading to Rome. What an amazing little man Paul is. That's what Paul means, little. Just this little guy, and he's taking on the greatest powers in the land. And how's he doing it? Through bribes? 
through lies, through courting favor with worldly powers? No, by holding to the truth, by keeping a clear conscience. Do you see the power of a pure conscience? A pure conscience grows certain characteristics in us. Uh, 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 as we've seen in, in, in Ananias and in Felix and in Festus, a, a polluted conscience results in some pretty nasty things. But what does a clear conscience result in? Here's some things I see in Paul. Maybe we can talk around the potluck tables. Maybe you see more. But I think a pure conscience grows these characteristics in Paul and in us. First, it grows courage. Paul's courage is just, it's, it's unflappable. It's just always so strong. He has no fear before any of his accusers. No fear before Felix when he's talking to him. No fear of appealing to Caesar. I'm, he said, I'm, I'm fine going to Caesar because I haven't done anything wrong and because the Lord is with me. So a pure conscience breeds courage in us. It, it, also, it also grows honesty in us. We can just be completely honest about who we are and what we've done. I love what he says in verse 21 of chapter 24. He's talking and he says, listen, I haven't done anything wrong other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. I don't know, is Paul admitting that he did something wrong there? Is he saying, well, maybe I, you know, I kind of stepped over the line. I was trying to cause a problem and I, and I did. I, I succeeded in what I want to do. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But there's just honesty about him. He's, he, his life is, is open. He says, you know, I, I haven't done anything wrong. If you want to accuse me about anything, I was, I was a, a, a little, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, wh- what's that? Inflammatory. That's good. I, I've got another one that was on the tip of my tongue, but I can't figure out what it is. So we'll go with inflammatory. He's a little just stirring things up. And maybe I shouldn't have done that, he says. But he's just honest. You know, when we live a life of, with a pure conscience, we can be honest about our shortcomings. We can be honest about our failures and our sins. We can live our lives in an open and honest way. So a pure conscience uh, grows courage in us. It grows honesty. It grows patience. Two years. But Paul knew he hadn't done anything wrong. And that pure conscience kept him from, from giving a little money to Felix. He could have gotten out. Maybe if I give Felix just a little bit of cash, I can get out. But he knows he hasn't done anything wrong. And he doesn't want to pollute his conscience with a bribe. And so he keeps his conscience pure and he's able to be patient knowing that God is in control, holding on to that promise probably of chapter 23, that the Lord was standing by his side. So courage, um, honesty, patience, and then we just could say faith. Faith. Uh, Paul is, is trusting the Lord in the midst of all this. He's trusting that he hasn't done anything wrong. He knows that this imprisonment is not because of his own sin or, or, some, or something like that. And you wonder even if the, the clarity of his conscience allowed him to see what God was doing. Was it in that moment, as what Trevor read in Matthew 10, where the Lord's going to give you the words to say, was it in that moment that the Spirit helped him to know, this is your chance for a tri- free trip to Rome, Paul. Appeal to Caesar. You've done nothing wrong. And Paul, with this clear conscience, unclouded by any sin, anything else, 
was able to see what God was doing and appeal to Caesar and get a free trip to Rome to proclaim the gospel there. There's more. You have to tell me what you think as far as what you see this clear conscience growing in Paul, but it just makes me say, I, I want a clear conscience. I want to strive in my life to have a clear conscience before God and others. I think that's going to mean knowing God's word because we, we need to know how to act with integrity, how to act with justice and mercy in all the different situations of life. Knowing what God's word says and knowing that we to, how to obey it is going to help us to have this clear conscience. But also, it doesn't mean perfection again. Rather, it's going to mean living a life of confession before God and others. Having a clear conscience is going to mean that we have a life that quickly admits sin and seeks forgiveness. A life of humility. A life that's lived in close community. It's not lived in isolation, but others know what's going on in our lives. And it's, it's a life that seeks to live out of the pure conscience that's been given to us by Christ. It's not, it's not trying to, um, we, we, we want to strive to have a clear conscience, but we want to do it in a way that remembers that's not what saves us. Uh, on our own, we could never be pure. Jesus Christ was the only man who lived his entire life with a pure conscience because he never sinned. And because he never sinned, he not only could give us his righteousness, but he could pay the penalty for our sin. And so everyone who confesses their sins and believes in what Christ has done will be, will be saved. And, and that would have been true, and, and Paul knew this, that would have been true for Ananias, it would have been true for Felix, it would have been true for Drusilla, and for Festus, no matter what they had done to pollute their conscience. If they would have confessed and believed, they could have been given a pure conscience before God on the last day. And I think that's why Paul continued to bring these things before them. He knew the power of the gospel. And we know the power of God, the gospel as followers of Jesus, that through faith we can have a pure conscience. And given that, to stand before God on the last day because of the righteousness of Christ, it causes us to strive after, to take pains, to live lives that have a clear conscience before God and man. I think there's, I think confession feels like a natural application of this. Uh, to, to live a life of open confession and maybe even today that there's something plaguing your mind, plaguing your conscience that you need to confess to a brother or sister in Christ even before you leave today. Or maybe creating a culture of confession in your own life, a consistency where that's happening on a regular basis so that we can live honest before others and honest before God. But I also think, as always, taking the Lord's Supper is a great application uh, to remember that it's because of what Christ has done that our hearts and our minds and our consciences can be sprinkled clean, can be made pure because Christ did live a perfect life and died for all the ways that we have sinned. And so that's what we're going to move into now, and I want to 
invite you, if you have put your faith in Christ alone, you're not trusting in how hard you're working to have a, a clear conscience, but you're trusting in the fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and can give you his righteousness, that he died, his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be made pure before God and so that on the last day we can stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. If your hope is in Jesus alone, then I invite you to remind yourself of that by taking the bread and taking the cup this afternoon. If that's not true, I'd ask that you simply allow it to pass you. Um, we want to protect what this meal uh, represents and means. And so I want to have an opportunity now to, to look into our own hearts and to confess any sins that we need to. And then we'll pass the, the bread and take it together and do the same with the cup. Father, even now as we lay open our hearts before you, thank you for the gift of confession. Thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ, that, that we can have a clear conscience even now because of what he has done for us. And thank you, Lord, for the hope that on that last day we can stand before you, not in our own righteousness, not in our own purity, but in the purity of Christ. Lord, we long to remember him well even now as we take the bread and the cup. We thank you for giving us this wonderful meal to take together. Pray that you would be honored as we take it. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.